Well, let's turn once again to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. You know, there's a story that sums up our passage for today, one that some of you may have heard. Uh, It's called A Piece of Cake. It's a story about a little boy talking to his grandma as she's cooking. And uh, he's crying, he's telling her everything that's gone wrong, he's telling her about all that's gone wrong, you know, at school and at home and with friends, etc., etc., and and Grandma's baking a cake, and she asks him if, if he wants a snack, and of course that brightens him up a bit, and he says, yeah, he, of course he does, and so she says, here, have some cooking oil, and uh, he says, yuck, Grandma, well then, how about a couple of raw eggs? Grandma, Gross. Okay, then, maybe some flour or bacon soda? Grandma, those are yucky. To which Grandma replies, yes, they seem bad all by themselves, don't they? But when they're put together in the right way, they make a wonderful, delicious cake. And then she went on to explain to her little grandson how God works in the same way. She said, many times we wonder why he would let us go through such hard times, don't we? I do too, but God works them together for good. We just have to trust him and eventually he'll make something wonderful out of them all. And then it ends with, I hope your day is a piece of cake because that's what your life is. We finished Christ's letter to the church at Smyrna last week and um, we... uh, are going to be moving on from uh, Ephesus and Smyrna to take an overview of these three chapters. With Ephesus, we saw one side of Christ's character, that out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, one that slayed none other than the Apostle John. And that's a good part of who he is. Then with Smyrna, the suffering church, we saw that he's one that brings in the balm of Gilead with incredible compassion and sympathy and empathy, these two powerful sides of Christ's character that paint a complete picture. And so before we launch into the book of Romans at the end of the month or the beginning of October, we're going to spend four weeks taking an overview of uh, these seven churches of these uh, two chapters. And it begins at the end of the church at Smyrna, uh, where it says, Be faithful unto death, Christ says, and I will give you the crown of life. There it is, death, yucky ingredients, leading to the piece of cake, the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is at the heart of all that we're going to get in the afterlife. It, that is the glorified bodies that will grow, that will thrive forever without ever again getting old. And the flip side of that is verse 11, the last verse in his letter to the church at Smyrna where he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And that's, as we saw last week, eternal death in the lake of fire, which is hell. No, the second death is not awaiting you, rather the crown of life. He who overcomes will get this, which launches us off into Christ's summary of these things the main teaching to these seven churches. It's a formula. He who overcomes, I will give. That's how Christ ends his letters to each of these seven churches. He who overcomes, I will give. 
And in so doing, it's like he's stretching a banner over the whole Christian life. He does it at the end of the Bible, which in the Greek is the most important place. And Christ himself always saved his most important teachings for last. We could do a whole study on that, so we'd never forget them. And here at the end of each of the letters, the last part, the most important part, he says, he who overcomes, I will give. He who overcomes all the yucky ingredients, I will give a piece of cake. As a result of those lucky ingredients, yucky ingredients. To him who finishes the race, buffeting his body, which is hard and hurtful and exhausting. Paul said, I'll give the prize, the crown of life, he who overcomes. Over the next four weeks before we launch into Romans, we're going to see that what that means is this. You might say uh, it's a Cliff Notes version of the Christian life, as you'll see at the top of your notes. The Christian life is a, is a momentary life. The Christian life is a momentary life of labor in his power. That's what he's teaching here, as we'll see, for an eternity of treasure in his presence. It's a momentary life of labor in his power for an eternity of treasure in his presence. This week, we'll focus on our momentary life of labor. Next week, we'll see how he teaches here and and elsewhere in Revelation that it's a momentary life of labor in his power that comes with his very presence. So we're not alone in it. And then for the next two weeks, we'll focus on the last and most important part of this, and that is for an eternity of treasure in his presence. Yes, it's a momentary life of labor. It's the race that Paul talked about, again, in 1 Corinthians, about running the race to receive the prize. And it means you're going to have to run through some hell and high water. You're going to have to slog through some hell and high water. You'll be, sometimes you'll be crawling through it. But the scripture teaches that for the eyes of faith, it's all in eternity's sunrise. It's like Solomon said in Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous, I love this, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day, and it's guaranteed as certain as the coming of the dawn. What we're going to talk about for the next four weeks is, what, is what's by far the most important thing to remember about the epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches at the end and the most important place in the Bible. And that is first, it's a momentary life of labor. Because Christ begins by saying, Roman numeral one in your notes, to him who overcomes. This is one of the things that the American church today most needs to hear. And yet it's what you're least likely to hear in many churches in this land of uh, of smiley-faced, feel-good Christianity, where we often tell people that if you become a Christian, God's going to magically wipe away all your problems. Or at least you can give that impression. It's, it's American Christianity moving on to point A in your notes. And you can fill in the blanks because American Christianity confuses the hope of the gospel with the American dream. 
the hope of the gospel with the American dream. So many have this subtle expectation, which they often don't even put to words, that Christianity is, is, is all about what you're going to get right now. It's about being a satisfied customer. That health and wealth and this abundant life that's going to take away all your pain. It's like life is supposed to be the dessert. And when you have to end up eating from the Heavenly Father all this broccoli and spinach that God says is good for you, you wonder, what have I signed up for anyway? Too often, American Christianity is is the opposite of the woman you might have heard of who wanted to be buried uh, holding her fork. Have you ever heard of her? She, she told her pastor that she wanted him to put a fork in her hand while she was laying in the casket so everyone could see it. And when he asked her why in the world that, she, you know, that she'd want to be seen in her casket holding a fork, she said this. She said, in all my years of attending church socials where food was involved, my favorite part was when whoever was clearing away the dishes of the main course would lean over and say, you can keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming, like cake or pie. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork of my hand, and I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And then, Pastor, I want you to tell them something better is coming so they can keep their fork too. You know, too often we think uh, in this race that we run that the best is supposed to be here when in fact the best is yet to come. That's what we're running for. Too often from the get-go, we leave people with a false impression that when, um, that, that, you know, even when we, can sh- we share our faith from the four spiritual laws, for instance, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and we don't read the footnote that the wonderful plan means a painful plan to get to a wonderful place it is wonderful but not as we interpret it in America and then when the pain sets in like it always does I've met so many who feel like you know they've been sold a bill of goods in fact there's a book about this by Ray Comfort called God has a wonderful plan for your life subtitled the myth of the modern message And on the front cover it says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And then there's a picture of Stephen being martyred. Some wonderful plan. By the way, Bill Bright, who wrote the Four Spiritual Laws, said at the end of his life that he wished he had phrased it a little differently because it it can give the wrong impression. Now, God has used the Four Spiritual Laws powerfully. I've used it. Millions have come to Christ. And I don't want to denigrate that, just like he uses all of us in spite of some mistakes. But... It's a huge problem. A lot of Christians struggle with that, and yet we don't often talk about it much in the church. And so over the last 30 years as a pastor, I have met so many cynical Christians, wounded Christians, disillusioned Christians who who were not warned about this when they signed on to the faith. It's become, you know, the fine print that that, that nobody ever reads to people. And so they think there's something wrong with them. And maybe you felt this way. I have years ago until I started really to study this. Something's wrong with me or what's wrong with the Christian faith or what's wrong with God that it's so hard. Because what they too often hear in the church and really we absorb it from the culture that it's all about all you're supposed to get in the here and now. 
How could it be true if I'm not a satisfied customer? How could it be true if it's not the latest pill that takes my pain away? Isn't that what Christianity is supposed to do? If it, how could it be true if it doesn't provide instant gratification? Well, it does, but not in quite the way you think of it. This moves us from American Christianity to point B, biblical Christianity. What we're talking about today is by far the most important teaching in the epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches, and it reflects his teaching all through the Gospels. So important is this one truth that we most need to hear about the Christian life that Christ repeats it seven times at the end of each of the letters to the seven churches. He repeats it to each of them almost verbatim. It's the last thing he says to the first church, church at Ephesus, Revelation 2.7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then he goes on to say, to him who overcomes six more times to the other six churches. And he follows it each time with the rewards that we're going to get in heaven. And so the founder of Christianity sums up the whole of the Christian life as a momentary life, a momentary life of labor, as we'll see in his power, for an eternity of treasure in his presence. I will give. Good is done. Life can feel like an eternity when in fact Christ teaches that this whole life is just an instant. It's just the blink of a life and then we'll be there and so Christianity does offer instant gratification. (laughs) Right? If you have an eternal perspective. It really does. Uh, The backdrop of these letters is this momentary idea. Two times in these letters to the seven churches, Christ says, behold, I am coming, what? Quickly. Quickly. And then two times at the end of the book, the most important part of the book, what he he wants to leave us with, he says it again, so there's no mistake in it. Behold, I am coming quickly. It's kind of like the guy who uh, was asking God some questions. What Christ is saying, it's all momentary, but it doesn't feel that way. And he asked God, how long is a thousand years to you? And, the God, and God said, mm, about a second. And then he asked God, how much is a million bucks to you? Oh, about a penny. And then he asked God, how about a million bucks then? To which God said, just a second. That's the problem with a Christian life. How long, O oh Lord? Just a second. And it is, but it's not. But it is. He keeps saying, just a second. Behold, I am coming quickly. Paul, this slight momentary affliction is producing us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. Just a second. It is momentary. It's a momentary life. And what happens in that moment? Well, it's the labor. Christ couldn't have been more clear. This is so important that we really need to let it sink in. 
Yes, right now we do get some things in the here and now as a result of becoming Christians. We get a whole family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, Christ around us, Christ, best of all, Christ within us, as we're going to see next week, his presence and his power to make it through. We get a whole lot. And it's a good thing we do because we got to labor through a whole lot. That's why we get it. You'll find this all through Scripture. It was true even for Christ. It says in Hebrews, through the days of his flesh, saying all through his life, what? Christ offered up prayers and supplications with loud cryings and many tears. Hebrews 5, 7. It was a life of labor for him too. The Apostle Paul said he got depressed. So take heart. And even, he even despaired of life, 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Just read the Psalms if you think that, you know, if you're really spiritual, it won't affect you. <laughs> and you just rise above it all. Yeah, the psalmists do rise above it all, but it's through the pain, not just pretending it away. It's real. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. 1 Thess 3, 2, he talks about their afflictions and then he says, you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans 8, 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. That's the word that comes from a woman's labor. That's how hard it is. And Christ himself teaches it, not just here in Revelation, but all through the Gospels. He said, if you are a true follower, if you're a real believer, much of the Christian life is going to be a cross to bear. I'm quoting him here. It'll be a life to lose. It'll be a cost to count. A whole world to forsake. And that can be hard. It's all in these three words. He who overcomes. So, what kind of things are you going to have to overcome as you run the race that he has set before you as you slog and crawl through that race? What are some of the challenges? Well, each of these churches, and we don't have time to get into it, had unique things that they had to overcome. And so it is with us. Often some pretty fleshly things, just like with us. And that sometimes can be the hardest. You can sum up a lot of this by our overcoming battle against the flesh that God knows is still in us, to which Paul said, wretched man that I am. Peter Kreeth put it this way. He said, the way back to God has to be painful, for the old man of sin will keep complaining and paining us at each step we take towards his arch enemy. Doesn't happen like that. Can take a lifetime to work through these flesh patterns that we have. Sometimes it does happen like that, but... But there's always something. He concludes, the meaning of life is war. War against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what is it for you? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety, unbelief. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's 
physical, God knows. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's relational or circumstantial or psychological or all of the above at one time or another. If it's not one thing, it will be another. Because I think we have it on pretty good authority in this Cliff Notes version, you know, of the Christian life. Christ couldn't have made it more clear because these letters to the churches, they're not just for them, they're for us too. We don't have time to get into this, but these seven churches were actual churches back then in New Testament days. But, and many g- godly commentators feel that they stand for the seven periods of church history. And they stand for seven uh, types of churches. They represent all that and more, such as the depth of, uh, and breadth of Christ's words. You could easily spend years on just these churches. But the point is this. Christ characterizes the Christian life in exactly the same way for all the churches in all the ages and for all the Christians in all the churches. He who overcomes. So there you have it. Now, you've got to be very careful here to put a comma after that and not a period. <laughs> Because as Paul said, given all we go through, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But there's a comma, not a period. It's so important that you do that or you can get pretty disheartened or disillusioned or even despair if what's on the other side of the comma isn't real to you. And so Christ puts a comma after it in each and every one of these seven letters. Because he wants something to really sink in. That it's all in eternity's sunrise. And so to the church at Ephesus, he says, to him who overcomes, comma, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Praise God. Revelation 2.7. And to the church at Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death. He who overcomes, I will give you the crown of life. That's Revelation 2.11. Pergamum, to him who overcomes, comma, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, which in three weeks we'll see is pretty amazing. Revelation 2.17. Thyatira, he who overcomes, comma, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 2.26. Sardis, he who overcomes, comma, I will get to be clothed in white garments. That's our glorified bodies. Revelation uh, 3.5. Philadelphia, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Like some people are pillars in the community or the church. In the new Jerusalem will be pillars. Revelation 3.12. Laodicea, finally, he who overcomes, I will grant him best of all to be with me, to sit down with me on my throne. Revelation 3.21. You think he's trying to tell us something here? He who overcomes, I will give. He's trying to give us really an eternal uh, perspective here. You could stretch this as a banner over the entire of the last book of Scripture. One end is here in chapters 2 and 3. And the other is at the very end of the book in chapters 21 and 22. It's a banner stretching over all the chapters of tribulation, all 16 chapters of them that fill the rest of the book. 
and over whatever tribulation you go through. And what that does is this. It, it changes your perspective. And perspective is everything. Because the labor is for treasure that will last forever. The pain is for the gain. And all you got to do is wait just a sec. And in that second, give it your all. By his power, as we'll see next week. Gives us an eternal perspective. So that through all our afflictions, even through our cataclysms, even through the global cataclysms that may be coming, through all the the rigors of the race, we can live in eternity's sunrise. Max Lucado put it this way in an article that he wrote, one of my favorites, called Make Friends with Whatever's Next. Listen carefully. He said, embrace it, accept it, don't resist it. Change is not only a part of life, change is necessary, a necessary part of God's strategy. But someone might ask, what about the tragic changes that God permits? Some seasons make no sense. Do such moments serve a purpose? They do if we see them from an eternal perspective. What makes no sense in this life will make perfect sense in the next. And I have proof. It's, it's you in the womb. You in your mother's womb. I know you don't remember this prenatal season, so let me remind you of what happened then. Every gestation day equipped you for your earthly life. Your bones solidified, your eyes developed, the umbilical cord transported nutrients into your growing frame. For what reason? So you might remain in wombed? Quite the contrary. Womb time equipped you for earth time. Suited you up for your postpartum existence. Some prenatal features went unused before birth. You grew a nose, but you didn't breathe. Eyes developed, but you couldn't see. Your tongue and toenails served no function in your mother's belly. But aren't you glad you have them now? Certain chapters of this life seem so unnecessary, like nostrils on the pre-born, suffering, loneliness, disease, holocausts, martyrdom, monsoons. If we assume this world exists just for a pre-grave happiness, I would add if we confuse the hope of the gospel with the American dream, if we exist, if we assume this world exists just for pre-grave happiness, those atrocities disqualify it from doing so. But what if this earth is the womb? Might these challenges, severe as they may be, serve to prepare us, equip us for the world to come? As Paul wrote, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Then he quotes the New Living Translation. These little troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. Yeah, it's a lot of labor, but it's also a lot of treasure 
so much so that the labor is not worthy to be compared to the treasure. Yeah, it's a momentary life of labor, but as you'll see under point two, which will be next week, we'll see the difference that he makes because he goes on to make it clear in these chapters that we don't labor in his absence, but in his presence. But not just in his presence, but in his power. And so through it all, all we need to do, if you'd all stand, is just look up to him with faith.